0: right you're listening to affect autism and we have a follow-up today from a blog a few weeks ago about the Rebecca school a DIR school developmental individual differences relationship-based model school in Manhattan we spoke there with Ray Leeper who talked about how they use process-oriented learning in applying the DIR model at the school and at the time she said that this looks different um, depending on the child's developmental level or the the different developmental levels of the students. So today we are privileged to have with us Julia Feltis, a head teacher at the Rebecca School, to give us some examples about what that is. Welcome Julia. Hi Daria, how are you? <laughs> Great, thank you. So um, maybe you can take a second to just Remind our listeners, or for those who didn't hear the podcast about the Rebecca School, what is process-oriented learning? How does it relate to the application of the DIR model? And um, then we'll get into the developmental levels.
1: So I'm the head teacher for the classroom, and when I'm thinking about how I design curriculum for the kids, um, I'm really thinking about their developmental capacities. So are they regulated? Are they able to share attention? Are they able to sustain engagement? Also, I'm looking at their interests and their passions. So, for example, we're reading Hansel and Gretel right now. And so, I have a bunch of different activities based on how the kids present in that moment. So, if a child really needs to move his body and it's looking a little bit upregulated or dysregulated, I might do an obstacle course where the kids are going through the forest and I might create like a candy house. I might drop pebbles on the floor so that they can get the movement in so that they're regulated and able to sustain engagement for more of a traditional literacy-based activity. And then for the kids who are regulated and can sustain engagement and have those higher level uh, capacities such as um, answering basic WH questions, maybe they're looking at more abstract questions like how, where, why, Um, we started building witches' houses from the story. So they're able to think about what supplies they might need. Where can they find the supplies? What are their most favorite things to eat so they can build their houses with those ingredients? So it really runs the gamut, but I really look at how the kid is presenting in that moment. Are they regulated first of all? Are they engaged before moving on to those higher capacities?
0: And what if you have a few kids who aren't regulated and then the others are it must be quite a juggling act, depending on the number of students. I know you don't have large classes, but still um, a group size. Um, is, it, is it exactly like what you said? Like, okay, you guys were doing this, and you guys, you're building witch houses?
1: So I always sort of have um, two to three activities in the back of my head so that I'm prepared um, based on how um, the child is in that moment. Um, I also have wonderful teacher assistants to help me. So if I notice that, um, say I'm going to do the witch's house that I really want to try it to do at the larger group, but I really notice that I have a few friends who aren't with me. It's it's not beneficial or productive for the child to just keep pushing through because we really want to meet the child where they are. So I might ask the TA, oh, could you take you know um, this friend and this friend into the hallway and do a Hansel and Gretel obstacle course? So it's really noticing um where the child is and meeting where the child is in the moment. And I like to have a few things prepped so that I it's not so much of a juggling act and I sort of feel like I, I know what to do in the moment.
0: So while you're prepared, you really are Um, monitoring moment by moment as opposed to sticking to a strict agenda, which which you hear a lot of traditional type of teaching approaches do. They stick to an agenda and expect the kids to follow, and if they don't, it's behavior and there's a consequence. Whereas you're really monitoring the the pulse of the room and, and sort of taking care of it on the fly, but with that expectation already in your head.
1: So, I mean, we're ready to, say I come into a reading group and I have a certain idea of how I want the group to go, I'm ready to throw it away at a moment's notice. Because if I see a a child who has an idea or an interest, we're going to run with that. Because that's how they're going to be most engaged and and willing to participate for a longer period of time. And it's not really about what I have in mind for the group. It's really about um, allowing the children to really use those higher level thinking skills and it's what we come away with that's not necessarily the product that we come out with. It's the process. Um, so, for example, I, it happened today, actually. I had a certain idea of what we were going to do for reading today. And one of the kids said, well, I want to rewrite the story. He's like, I want, the witch, I want the witch to be eaten by the kids. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So I scratched my whole plan. We've got out some paper and we started rewriting the story. And we started with the characters and who the character should turn into. So we went through Hansel, Gretel, uh, the witch, the woodcutter, the stepmom, and the bird that they follow to get to the house. And they came up with some really cool ideas, like kangaroos and owls and a woodpecker and lots of cool things. So it turned into something completely different. And it wasn't what I had in my you know, teacher plan book, but it was better because it was the kid's idea.
0: I just love that. I love that. And um, I think the most important thing that you said is it's not about the product, it's the process. And that's the whole point of process-oriented learning.
1: And it also keys into like a sense of time and rigidity also. So we have a visual schedule in the classroom and it's, you know, typically we try to keep our activities to 30 minute blocks, but sometimes it's not enough time and sometimes it's too much time. And so it really helps the kids work on to, on rigidity as well. So, for example, today we were really into writing the story and we went over and one of the kids was like, wait, it's time for movement. We usually do yoga. And I said, yeah, but we're working on something different. It's, you know, it doesn't always, we don't, life is not predictable. <laughs> Things happen. And this is sort of like a way in sort of a natural way to work on Changes, those unpredictable things that happen in life, and we're okay when it happens because we were doing something fun. Yes, we missed yoga, and it's going to happen later in the day, but we're okay.
0: That's great. Um, and do you have um, some examples of? I mean, I, I you touched on it a bit, but how do you apply? this idea of process-oriented learning at different developmental levels. So I'm not sure if you have the same class of kids the whole day or if you have a few different groups yeah. of kids. Yeah, or... we, we
1: have the same, the same group of kids. Um, I think a good activity to sort of explore that would be our community foods group. So it's a group that I run with our speech therapist. So each month we have a new community food, and we start off in the first week Uh, making predictions about what we think that food might be. Um, So I might give clues. Uh, I have a mystery bag where we put the actual food in the bag and we can feel it, we can smell it. We're not going to look yet. (laughs) We can shake it around. So that gives students of all developmental um, abilities and also um, different sensors as well. So I have friends who don't like to touch sticky things or wet things or slimy things so if the community food which was pumpkin last month uh, was in a bag maybe they could smell it maybe they could shake it around maybe they could squeeze it in a bag so they don't actually have to touch it whereas some friends might be more comfortable with that so that they can explore it in a different way so we have um a lot of different ways to explore the same thing and meeting students where they are so that we're not turning any kid off, we want the kid to be able to join the group in whatever way they can.
0: And what are the ages of your students? The
1: youngest is 8, and the oldest is turning 14. So it's a pretty wide age range this year. Okay. Um, but we're finding that it, it the age, the chronological age, is not necessarily what matters most. Mm-hmm. Um, I When I'm planning activities, I really look, again um, – where the students are developmentally in general, where they are presenting that day at at a given moment, and also what what are their interests, what are their passions. So like this summer, I had a lot of kids who really loved transportation. So we did a whole unit on the subway. And um, we read a bunch of books about the New York City subway system. We talked about New York City landmarks. We made timelines. Um, of like the different like subway um, turnstiles, the different subway tokens, how it you know transitioned from coins to cards. So there's a lot of different things that you can do. Um, and also um, in terms of transportation, also we have a lot of friends that love racing. So we did Tortoise and Hare when, um, one month. And we did a ton of obstacle courses where we actually created like race car tracks in the classroom and in the hallway. Um, And we could recreate the story that way. So if a child really needs that movement, if they um, need that sensory input to maintain regulation engagement, then we're going to incorporate that. It doesn't necessarily need to be a seated activity or a tabletop activity for them to be able to work on all those traditional like sequencing that we want them to learn.
0: Right, right. Um, We had... uh... I also spoke with Dave Nelson from the community school in Atlanta, who works primarily with young adults and, young, uh, young adults and adolescents. And um, he mentioned, um, and which I'd like you to comment on too, because I'm sure you're doing it as well. He mentioned um, a lot about the group process, and now he was speaking about a small three person, three student group and um, how you have that added dimension of peer interaction and um, getting the peers to co-regulate with each other and shared social problem solving at the fourth developmental capacity. Um, I wondered if you could give us some examples of doing that as well because it sounds um, so interesting that you're working all these different transportation things. Um, Not only are the kids at different developmental levels but then you're also trying to to get them to do it together.
1: Right. Um, I mean, this happens all the time in, like, a literacy group. Um, It happened the other day where we were trying to explain um, why Hansel sticks out a chicken bone instead of his finger when he's locked in the cage by the witch. And some friends really understood that Hansel is trying to trick the witch so that he's still considered too skinny to eat. Um, and some friends didn't understand it. And so I really was trying to have the kids that didn't get it um, try to explain to their friends um, in a way that they could understand, in a way that they could explain. Because sometimes it, it works better to hear from a friend than your teacher sometimes than from an adult. Um, and so we actually had two peers um, act out the scene. Um, and it, it, it really solidified their understanding, but also they were working on regulation because they were getting a little bit frustrated that they couldn't move on from the story, but we wanted everyone to understand. So I was working on sort of their frustration tolerance and their regulation and also perspective taking, like thinking about your friend, oh, they don't really understand it yet. How would they feel if we moved on and they didn't get it? And it really worked and the kids worked together and they were able, you know, we had a few adults co-regulating and just offering you know validation but they were able to explain the scene to the friend and the the friend got it and he was so happy and he's so proud and then his friends were happy that you know everyone understood and that they were able to help
0: oh that's wonderful
1: (laughs) and it doesn't always go that way right right (laughs) some person might get frustrated and need to take a break and co-regulate in a quieter um environment and then rejoin um but that is our goal I mean it's Groups are, are tough because you have a, a lot of different developmental abilities and, you know, a lot of different factors that come in um, based on the day, based on the moment. And you're really trying to glue the kids together.
0: Right, right. Um, do you find um, that your class, because I assume the way that they're grouped at the start of the year, is... Um, the class tends to be in a cluster of about the same developmental capacity at their best. So are they, it sounds to me from the topics that you're discussing that these are children working at the four, five, and six levels of of developmental capacities. Is that about accurate?
1: Um, We have a few friends who are are more or less solidifying the first three capacities, I would say, but I'd say it's about half and half. Okay. Um, I think the hardest jump is to go from capacity three to capacity four. And I think a lot of our kids are there. They're like at the cusp. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why the group is working really well this year because we have um, the kids who do have those higher level skills who are filling in the holes at the bottom. And then we have the kids who are just getting there. And I think having them work together, they're sort of helping each other out to fill in um, the areas of more of difficulty
0: yeah I know our son was at uh, you know at his best at the third capacity which seemed like you know three years or something and he's finally into four now and he's working through some of those harder pieces in level four of the motor planning the sequencing the um, the um... um, oh what was I going to say? but what really did help him was that a couple of new kids came to the school last year and they were at higher capacities than he was. And I think that really did help to pull him up a little bit um, as much as it helps to have him interact with children who are still um, at working at the lower capacities than he is. So um, I love hearing that there's that mix of um, the older kids learning how to tolerate the frustration show patience and perspective for the other kids and and help them as well as the other kids um you know essentially being co-regulated by old, older kids to be pulled into to the level of understanding that they need to be at and um and certainly it, it's a long journey um to get from 3 to 4 and and within 4 4 there's so much in mm-hmm. uh capacity for it, it, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how long it's going to be before we see that slip into five because there's, there's very few little tiny hints of islands into five, but it's really not there yet. Um,
1: the way that we sort of work on um, getting kids from three to four, at least in my classroom, is that we really want to provide the children with just right challenges. So, um, you know, challenging them, but also making sure that they're able to be successful because if you just present challenges where they feel like they're never going to get there, it's less motivating. Um, There's also obviously an emotional piece to that. Um, So for example, in our mealtime program, the children work together to set the table and our jobs rotate um, each month. And today we didn't have any forks left in the bin. And so we spent about 20 minutes figuring out where could we get forks. And for some friends, it's very easy. Oh, the fork's in the snack cabinet on the fifth floor. Like, I'll go get them. But teachers, we really work in the classroom and be like, wait, like, you know the answer, but this friend doesn't know. Like, how can we help them? So, th- I mean, that's like another layer to capacity for and problem solving when it's not more or less, you're not answering the question right away, but you're really thinking about how to explain it to another person. So that's how that kid is going to um, widen his capacity for. And then you're also challenging the other child to come up with a novel idea or think about oh there's none in the classroom where else could I look
0: right right and um, and going back to something you said earlier too which is um, having maybe operating at a level three level four but having constrictions at level one which is so much the case for for my son who's so upregulated all the time and really allowing that movement and helping that regulation Um, so that you're able to keep them up at that higher level to challenge them um, as opposed to staying down in that co-regulating the whole day. Right. I
1: mean, it actually happened today where we had a child um, who has those higher capacities who can reach four, five, and six pretty regularly. Um, But when things, um, unpredictable things happen, um, if he can't find something that he really needs in the moment, Um, we see him dropping back to capacity one and trying to get back to a state of regulation. Um, So we really look at how, how the child is presenting in the moment and, and um, changing the way that we're interacting in the moment based on that. So maybe we were asking pretty high level questions. Actually the child was coming up with his own Disney channel show starring one of the teacher assistants and he wanted to create a logo And he couldn't remember how to tell her how to draw the Disney, um, like, shape. And he couldn't explain it. And he wanted to find a phone to show her the picture. And we don't use cell phones at our school. And um, we don't tend to use a lot of technology. And we didn't have a phone. And he got really upset. And he felt like he couldn't get his idea across without it because it was different than what he had in his mind. Um and so we dropped we, you know, dropped what we were doing in the higher capacities and, and started to co-regulate with him. And once he was able to, you know, take a deep breath and it, then he was able to show that teacher what he was thinking about. And in the end we were like, you know, you did it. You didn't need the phone, you're okay. You were able to think about it and tell her the different steps and you got it. And he was really proud and really excited. Um so it's it's sort of like Yes, this kid can reach those higher capacities, but we're we're filling in the holes in the foundation because the regulation piece is is the most important. That like one through three is is terribly important. If we don't have that, um, the higher capacities have nothing to stand on.
0: Right, right. Um, and um, another thing about um, a lot of kids on the spectrum for sure is the anxiety. So um, when you're talking about working through the problem and getting there and and reassuring him and saying see you did it you didn't need a phone Um, do you find that a lot of work is spent sort of scaffolding the child through a process that they usually would rather just give up and do something else because it's too difficult and carrying them through and then and then once you do um, how important is that piece that you reflect with them and say this look, you did it, you can do it, and, and is, do you see that the confidence is increased by doing that over and over again in different situations? Yeah, I mean, that, that happens
1: all the time, and I mean, that highlights why the process is, is so important and so meaningful. Um, because, you know, if, if something is easy all the time, when things are hard, we don't know how to get through it. So it's sort of going through those challenges, even though it's difficult to see a child become dysregulated or frustrated, um, it's a necessary part of learning and growing and, and learning how to deal with the unpredictable things that are necessary part of life. And um, I mean, it happens to us, you know, like unpredictable things happen. And because we've gone through challenges and came out the other side, we know we're going to be OK. And so we know how to sort of to cope and self-regulate. And that's what we're, we're um, striving to teach the, the students who have issues with regulation, and it's going to be okay. That we're we're there with you. We're going to make it out to the other end.
0: And I think it's it's so important that um, that the staff at the Rebecca School is so empathetic and really able to attune into those children and really see what they're going through. Because I I can imagine it's difficult sometimes for adults to put themselves in the place of where they might be. And, and I, I have a memory from myself in kindergarten and, um, you know, it's clear as clear as day to me. I remember it like, like it was just a few years ago, but I was five and I remember that I was so excited to tell my kindergarten teacher and, and I'm, you know, I was very neurotypical. I had, had no issues. Um, I was excited to tell my teacher that I just found out that my cousin was in the morning kindergarten class and I was in the afternoon kindergarten class. But I couldn't for the life of me remember the word cousin, so I kept saying, My friend. And I was saying, Jodi is my friend. And my teacher was saying, Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, that's nice. And it was so frustrating to me that she didn't get it. Like, no, no, no. She's my um 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 friend. Oh, that's nice, that's nice. And I tried again the next day and I had forgotten the word again, and then I think it was however many days later or the next day, she said, Oh, Jody's your cousin Daria and I was like yes 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 and I just remember that feeling of being understood and like that's how Dr. Greenspan talked about it you can't beat feeling understood so um, just having that experience for, for adults who find it for, even for parents that are listening that find it difficult to relate with their children when they're going through these frustrating behavioral issues just to sort of step back and think you know, what's really going on for my child? Because it it seems frivolous to me, but for them, it's not. They're really frustrated, and they just can't get it out, or they can't remember, or they can't, their body's not letting them. Um, right. So, um, yeah, I think the work that you guys do um, is amazing.
1: And it, it happened actually today where um, we were doing lunch jobs, and a student had the job of passing out plates, and we've had a few plates break, and so we have... Like two different versions of the plate. We have a blue plate and a white plate. And a lot of the friends prefer the white plates. Um, And so um, this peer was passing out the plates and um, one of his friends got a blue plate and he was really upset. And the easiest thing I could have done would have been, all right, you can use the white plate. You don't have to use the blue plate. But I think it's really important to work through that challenge because Sometimes you're not going to get what you want. It's not going to be the way that you envisioned it in your mind. And we have to be able to work through that and, and not become dysregulated all the time. And so um, I worked through it with him with a whiteboard. I would write down like um, different, like facial, like with like emojis or something, or it looks like you're really frustrated Or I might mirror his affect with my face. Um, And Within 15 minutes, he was able to use the blue plate, and he said, Maybe tomorrow I'll get the white plate.
0: Aww. And so,
1: like, and I was like, You did. It. Like, I'm so proud of you. You're okay. The world didn't end. You're going to use a different plate, and that you're going to be fine. Because um, it sometimes feels like you're falling off the face of the cliff when things don't go your way, when it's you have a very memory based world in a certain order in a certain thing, way that things happen and if it doesn't go that way it's devastating
0: yeah I mean we go through that with our son um, very regularly he wants a specific glass I started giving him to drink his water in I found this cool Pac-Man glass mug and I played Pac-Man as a kid so I thought it was <laughs> so cool and one day I gave him his water in that Pac-Man glass well now that's all he wants and if it's not the Pac-Man glass I'm like no and so hearing that is great because now instead of just saying, okay, I'll go wash the Pac-Man glass and give it to you, I know now that this can be a floor time moment where I can work through it with him and say, oh, I know, I know. Um, but, you know, it's tough because, ah, you know. This,
1: <laughs> it's hard and you never want to, you know, especially if it's your own child, it's very difficult to see um, someone dysregulated and frustrated and upset and you want to make them feel better. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think it's... Because it's not my own child, <laughs> I think it's much easier for me um, to, to challenge a child in that moment, you know. And I, I still want to um, do it in a very loving and supportive way, um, but I, I really want to um, work on, on, on that frustration tolerance and, and problem solving. And it's happened so many times. I mean, the same child I was talking about with the, with the plate, we he, he used different colored cups and he lost his cup we were figuring out what to do. And I had an extra one, and it was pink. We did not want pink. And so we've been working on it for over two weeks about what we're going to do. Um, first, we he decided he wanted to color it blue. The marker washed off when we were cleaning cups. So oh. I was like, oh, that, that was a great idea, but it didn't work. We need to come up with something else. He thought about paint. We painted it blue. Same thing happened. And then finally, this happened last week, he noticed a peer who has a, a a milk drink that he really likes and he decided to take the wrapping off of the can of milk laminate it and tape it around the pink cup so that he could have a cup that was like his friends Aww. and wasn't pink anymore so he I mean it took two weeks I mean that's the process yeah he ended up with something really cool but to me the most important part is that two weeks of time that he was really really thinking and and working through a lot of different challenges
0: the process which as you said supportive and loving and that talks about the r and the dir model the relationship which is really um how he's able to get through it you didn't just say sorry that's your cup deal with it you really worked through it and you didn't work through it for two minutes or five minutes you worked through it for two weeks as you just said so um i think that's a that's Something that is really hard for a lot of um, parents to grasp is that you know what it's going to be a challenge, and you work through it, but the payoff is so great when you see those developmental leaps. Of um, course, yeah. I
1: mean, the relationship piece is so important to our kids. Um, they need to be able to trust you um, and feel really like comfortable because they're we're asking them to be really vulnerable in those moments. So the and the relationship piece. Um, is regulating. I mean, that's the most regulating thing beyond sensory diets and all the the sensory um, supports. I mean, th- although those are very important, I think that the the R, the relationship piece, um, is the thing that sort of carries it through.
0: Yeah, and and I've heard Dr. Tippy, who of course is the clinical director at the Rebecca School, say that the DIR model. Um, is really key in, in moving the children from that concrete world into the abstract world where you can understand that I'm having a drink, the drink tastes the same, is the same, has the same function whether I'm drinking it in a blue cup or a pink cup so the cup is not really the important thing if you're thirsty and to to understand that you really do have to be abstract and it's it's a really challenging thing for some kids and so that's where we're always working towards to move them towards the abstract, but there are so many steps before we get there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can see sort of when we're doing those literacy-based activities where, for example, the witch's house, um, you can see um, where sort of that child is on their road to abstraction. So for example, I had one child who um, altered the house slightly, so they decided to do Um, Graham crackers and cookies and candy. So it's a slight, you know, deviation away from the traditional cake and sugar candy house. And then I have some friends who decided they want to make it out of hash browns and hot dogs and McDonald's french fries and chicken tenders and all the things that they they see. Um, their their minds at work and sort of where they are on that road to abstraction and I mean those are the moments where you say oh my god that's so amazing like how could you make it a little bit different so your cha- you know those just right challenges okay you want to use oatmeal what else can you use you want to use candy how else can it be different here's the picture of, of the witch in the house can we use a different color candy so I mean just the even tiniest little changes and then that's how, what we're building on
0: yeah yeah Well, thank you so much for meeting with us, Julia. And um, if anyone's listening, you can see some more details and links in the full blog post. And um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much, Of course, my pleasure. Thank you. Until next week, here's to Affecting Autism.